Church, let me invite you this morning to open up God's Word with me to the final book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, as we return to this book and uh, jump right into chapter 18. If you're visiting with us, uh, know that uh, today's passage of Scripture was not selected uh, at random. This is uh, the typical practice that we undertake here at Meadowbrook is that we walk through books or sections of God's Word because we believe that's the best way that we can know Him. And so we've been studying the book of Revelation, and today we come to chapter uh, 18. And this final uh, portion of the Bible, these uh, concluding chapters of God's Word, John, the human author of uh, Revelation, uh, presents a tale of two cities. Uh, And in John's tale of two cities, Babylon uh, represents the world, Uh, specifically the people and the places and the kingdoms of this world that oppose Christ and his eternal kingdom. And by contrast to Babylon, uh, John uh, presents the new Jerusalem, uh, representing the holy city, the people of God, ultimately that are gathered with God and enjoying the presence and provision of God for eternity in heaven And so as God's written word comes to its fitting conclusion, John is suggesting that all people belong to one of these two cities, the city of man or the city of God. To which do you belong? The Bible brings clarity to that question for us. The Bible helps us see. And so let me invite you to look at God's word uh, with me. If you don't have a copy of the scriptures, let me encourage you to uh, look on with someone else or to grab a pew Bible. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find this text on page 1001. And as you do, uh, let me uh, invite you to join me standing once again uh, in body or in spirit for the reading of God's holy word. Revelation chapter 18, we've got a lengthy uh, text today, but we'll look at it in a few sections. I want to begin by reading verses 1 through 8. Let's hear the word of the Lord. John writes, he says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. For all the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her excessive luxuries. Then I heard another voice from heaven say, come out of her, my people. So that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. For her sins are piled up to heaven, and God uh, has remembered her crimes. Give back to her as she has given. Pay her double, back double for what she has done. Pour her a double portion from her own cup. Give her as much torment and grief as the glory and luxury she gave herself. In her heart she boasts, I sit enthroned as queen. I am not a widow. I will never mourn. Therefore, in one day, her plagues will overtake her, death, mourning, and famine. She will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges her. Would you bow with me in prayer? Father, we confess this morning that we need you. Lord, we thank you that your, your spirit's presence is with us, Lord, that you gather with your people, that you reside in your people. And Lord, we thank you for the spirit that instructs us in the truth. And so, Lord, uh, now we ask that you would instruct us in your truth, that we might know and live for you. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Well, you may be seated. I promise you can sit for a while now. 
But what we have in these opening verses of uh, Revelation chapter 18, I think, is a eulogy. We have a eulogy for the city of Babylon, which in the immediate context of John's revelation uh, represents Rome, at least on the near horizon. These opening verses of chapter 18 portray what is going to come of the mighty and magnificent city of Rome. Now, if you know much about history and you know much about the writing of the New Testament, John is writing uh, during a, a time of history where the Roman Empire is the dominant world power on the scene. And, and in John's day, Rome itself uh, had a population of a million or more residents. Some scholars even estimate as many as a million people residing there with much power, luxury, idolatry, and immorality. And it exported these things to all those around the world who would bow the knee to Caesar, to their king. The Bible says one day it would fall. John records his vision that one day this kingdom would collapse. In fact, within a few centuries, the Roman Empire would collapse and Rome's population would would diminish drastically to some 30,000 or so inhabitants, making much of the city indeed a haunt for birds and animals. You see, Rome is the city uh, built on seven hills from chapter 17, verse 9. Symbolically linked in John's revelation with Babylon, for like ancient Babylon, Rome now is opposing Christ and his people. And thus she too will come to ruin. If you know much about uh, the scriptures, and uh, you remember the Tower of, of Babel incident. Babylon has its origins, at least in that Tower of Babel culture recorded in Genesis chapter 11, where men tried to make a name for themselves rather than for for God. Babylon was the city that King Nebuchadnezzar, according to Daniel chapter 4, verse 30, built by his own mighty power and for the glory of his own majesty. You see, in John's revelation, Babylon represents Rome, but not just Rome. Also, I think every kingdom and nation opposed to Christ and his people. You see, the Rome's kings claimed to be gods and demanded worship, some of them even as gods. The true and living God declares his coming judgment upon the wicked world. Revelation chapter 18 is clear and all of scripture is repeatedly clear again and again that God's judgment is coming upon the wicked world. We cannot take the Bible seriously and ignore this truth. There's only one true king and he judges according to righteousness And both Babylon and Rome claim to be eternal cities, and yet they fail. Like ancient Babylon and ancient Rome, the kingdoms, cities, and structures of this world will soon face destruction and desolation. You history buffs know this. History is fascinating, is it not? But we know even now that some of the leading world powers of the last century are no longer you've traced history at all over any span of time, that you know that no empire lasts forever. No superpower remains indefinitely. And though there is much, much good in the world, it is still saturated with evil as men and women crave passing power, pleasure, and prosperity more than they crave God. Why do we often love and live for things other than Jesus? Because sin is alluring. Sin is attractive. 
The wise King Solomon once said, as recorded in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, he said, when the sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, people's hearts are filled with schemes to do wrong. In other words, when justice and judgment are delayed, sinners seize additional opportunities to make a name for themselves, to do their own thing, to do what's right in their own eyes, to suppress the weak and the poor, and to seize the day for personal pleasure and gain because no one is stopping them. Well, the Scriptures say that there is someone who will stop them. Three times in our chapter, the text shines the light directly upon Babylon's luxury. Verse 3, verse 7, and again in verse 9, suggesting that her inhabitants, don't miss this, live for self. They live for self. But such a life never goes unnoticed by the giver of life. God sees. God knows. The psalmist makes this clear. David makes this clear in Psalm 139. There's no place we can go to get away from God. There's nothing about us that God does not already know. He observes. He remembers. Verse 5, for her sins are piled up to heaven and God has remembered her crimes. You see, no wrong, no matter how big or how small, goes unpunished. Every single sin was either paid for in full upon the cross of Calvary or it will be paid for in full upon King Jesus' return to judge. And the only way to escape God's coming judgment is to repent and trust in Jesus. If you know the gospel, then you know this truth. The only way to escape the judgment of the Most High God, the Holy and Righteous and Eternal One, is to turn to His provision for us to repent and turn and trust in Jesus Christ. The Bible declares that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the Scriptures repeatedly announce God's pending judgment against sinners. But there is another category of of people, according to the Scriptures, according to verse 4 and verse 20 of our text, and according to all of God's Word, known as God's people. Meaning those who He claims as His very own. Believers. People of faith. Those who trust in Him. A consistent witness of God's Word reveals that these are those who worship the true and living God. By turning to Jesus in faith. So we already heard this morning, we had a great week this past week in vacation Bible school with many kids and volunteers. And thank you, church, for being a church that invests in children and teaching the generations what it means to know and follow after Jesus Christ. That's our aim in VBS. That's our aim, I hope, in all that we undertake. But our theme verse for the year was from John chapter 20, verse 31 where John writes and he reflects on what he's written in his gospel. And he says, but these things are written. He said, I've written this, that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. In other words, John says, there's much more that could be said about Jesus. I didn't have room to write all of it, but I wrote these things so that you would believe that he is the Messiah and that you would have life in him. A reminder that abundant and eternal life is only found in Jesus. The Bible declares that apart from Him, we remain condemned by our own sin. We remain on the road to destruction, awaiting God's judgment, even if all here appears to be well at the moment. Essentially, this chapter of God's Word says to us, Rome offers you luxury, but it will not last. 
Wall Street may offer you riches, but they too will fade away. The internet offers you secret pleasure, but it will come to light. Tuscaloosa may offer you a party, but it will come to nothing. You can have riches and status, economic and military security, wine in the cellar, and dozens of friends who like your every post. But if you do not have Jesus, verse 8, then you will be consumed by fire, for mighty is the Lord God who judges the world. Friends, God declares His coming judgment upon the wicked world. And because his judgment is coming, we must repent and trust in Jesus. And then we must show the gospel. We must show the gospel by living for Jesus in the world. We must demonstrate our faith. We must show by the way that we live that we are different, that we indeed are salt and light, that God has done something in us. And that his gospel changes us. John writes in verse 4, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her. Come out of Babylon, my people. Come out of the world, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. I think the message for Christians is this. Stop acting like the world. Don't buy into the world's lie that you are numero uno, that personal pleasure and power and prosperity are ultimate. Don't buy into the lie that you can compromise your faith and integrity if it means a promotion or popularity. No, Jesus says you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, he says, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. He says you are the light of the world. This is disciples, believers, followers of Jesus. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. He says, in the same way, let your light shine, believers. Let your light shine, Christians, before others, that they may see your good deeds and not glorify you, but glorify your Father in heaven. Reminds me of a conversation I had just a few weeks ago with a friend who was contemplating uh, what the Lord was was leading him to do. He was in a circumstance where he was uh, making good money. He was providing for his family. Things were well, but he felt like he was not contributing to Christ's kingdom work. He felt like he was doing the opposite of that, and he sensed the Lord leading him to do something more kingdom-oriented. And so uh, he had an opportunity, and it was an opportunity to take a significant uh, pay cut. And I asked him about that. He had children to feed, and he said, well, you know, I don't know, but I trust the Lord. And what better message to teach my children uh, that the gospel is more important than the dollar? Now, church, this sounds radical, and it is. Jesus' message is radical, but this call of Christ is no different Then what the Lord declared some 600 years earlier through the prophet Jeremiah, saying to a people who had been defeated and carried into exile and none other than literal Babylon this. He says, God says to them in Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 5. In other words, these are exiles. Their land has been uh, conquered. The temple's been destroyed by uh, the Babylonians and King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king has taken many of uh, the Jews into exile in a foreign land. And uh, Jeremiah sends a message from the Lord to them. And he says, build houses and settle down there. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. He says, increase in number there. Do not decrease. So also seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. He says, pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, 
you too will prosper. And this is the same chapter, just verses before that famous verse that many of us have memorized and and share and, and cling to tightly. For I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Often we forget that's a message that was sent to people who are living in exile. And the Lord is saying, you're going to be there for a while. Though you're in a foreign land, settle down and live out your faith as my people there. Trust me and serve me by showing yourselves to be different and distinct from those around you. Serve your city. Work for the good of it as faithful residents and godly people. And I think the same message is true for us. As those who live in a temporary dwelling place that is not our forever home. Friend, you may hold the deed to property and house, but it will soon fade away. It will soon be no more. We're called to trust in and love uh, the Lord and live for the Lord right here in a culture and a world that repeatedly rejects and opposes Him. See, like the ancient versions, modern day Babylon also celebrates herself. Boasting, verse 7, in her status and accomplishments and opposing the ways of Jesus Christ. John's tale of two cities invites believers to leave Babylon because they have a better city, an eternal city, a heavenly home. But such a countercultural perspective is foreign to the sinful self. It's foreign to those who live for self. For those who live for self will grieve at God's judgment. Those who live for self will, will grieve at God's judgment. John doesn't want us to miss this. And so he writes, and we will look back at the text, beginning in verse 9. John continues, he says, When the kings of the earth who committed adultery with her and shared her luxury see the smoke of her burning, they will weep and mourn over her. Terrified at her torment, they will stand far off and cry, Woe, woe to you, great city, you mighty city of Babylon. In one hour your doom has come. Verse 11, the merchants of the earth will weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold, silver, precious stones and pearls, fine linen, purple, silk and scarlet cloth, every sort of citron wood and articles of every kind made of ivory and costly wood, bronze, iron and marble, cargoes of cinnamon and spice, of incense, myrrh and frankincense, of wine and olive oil, of fine flour and wheat, cattle and sheep, horses and carriages and human beings sold as slaves. And what John is recounting here is the luxury items of his day gathered from all over the world that Rome is making a profit on and enticing people to have as they make political and other allegiances, spiritual allegiances with her. The text goes on in verse 17. Every sea captain and all who travel by ship, the sailors and all who earn their living from the sea will stand far off. They too, verse 19, will say, Woe, woe to you, great city, where all who had ships on the sea became rich through her wealth. In one hour, she has been brought to ruin. Now, what do we make of all of this? Three groups of people that are mentioned here. Three groups of people who mourn over Babylon's, a.k.a. Rome's demise. The kings who entered into alliances with her for political gain, verses 9 and 10. The merchants who sold their precious cargo to her, verses 11 and following. And I think the sailors who exported her luxury and immorality to the ends of the earth, 
verses 17 and following. These folks, I don't think, are so much in love with Babylon herself, for they stand far off, verses 10, 15, and 17, when judgment comes. They are ultimately concerned about themselves. They're sad because no one buys from them anymore. These adornments and luxuries and conveniences are all about living and having your best life now. Living for Babylon is all about living for yourself. And those who live for self will grieve at God's judgment because they never gave up the throne of their hearts. They never surrendered to Jesus. They loved and lived for themselves, for riches and pleasure, for power and popularity, embodying the self-centered mindset of Babylon herself, declaring, verse 7, I sit enthroned as queen. Church, I think these are weighty verses. This is a, a weighty warning against depending on the people and the powers of this world to provide for our needs. Not a warning against capitalism, but a warning against misplaced security and an obsession with luxury. Remember the story of of Jesus and the rich young ruler. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus. This story is recounted in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 19. comes to Jesus and asks uh, Jesus, good teacher, what must I do to be good? And Jesus corrects him right away. None of us are good except God himself. And then the rich young ruler then proceeds to tell him how good he is, right? That he's kept all the commandments. And he says, what do I still lack? And Jesus says to them, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor. And then you'll have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me, Jesus says. And when the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. Now selling your possessions, we we know this, won't get us to heaven. Salvation is by God's grace alone, through faith alone. In Jesus Christ alone. But Jesus was exposing this man's heart. He loved his status and his stuff more than he loved Jesus. Those who live for self will grieve at God's judgment. Because in the end, they will be the recipients of his judgment. But in contrast to these, there's another group of people. Not those who live for self, but those who live for Jesus because they've encountered a risen Savior and they've trusted in Him for salvation. Those who live for Jesus will rejoice in God's mercy and justice and power. Those who live for Jesus will rejoice in God's mercy, justice and power. We we, we need to hear that. We need to hear some uh, good news about rejoicing. We're reading a lot in this portion of God's Word about, about judgment. We can't ignore it. It's here. Judgment and salvation intertwined throughout this text. As if to build toward the end and to warn people to repent and to turn to Christ. But rejoicing is coming. We're getting there. We see it right here in verse 20. A call to God's people. Rejoice over her, you heavens. Rejoice, you people of God. Rejoice, apostles and prophets. For God has judged her with the judgment she imposed on you. You see, woe, woe, woe is followed by rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And I think this verse, verse 20, gets to the heart of the conflict between Christ's people and every culture of this world. It comes down to it. There are two camps of folks. There's Babylon and Rome and the world, and there are the people and servants of God. And how often is that latter camp, those who know and follow and strive to live for Jesus Christ, considered to be in the wrong? How often are believers considered and labeled to be too simplistic or uh, close-minded or intolerant or on the wrong side of history and the list goes on and on. 
But church, take heart. Be encouraged by the message of God's word because the scriptures are clear that the Lord of all history will soon judge the world that opposes him. And in the end, the beast and Babylon and the prostitute will give way to the beginning of eternity in Christ's eternal and perfect kingdom. Whereas none of these previous responses to the, from the inhabitants of the world recognize God's power and his mercy and his justice, those who know and live for him do. They praise him. That's what verse 20 is portraying. That's what chapter 19 is going to begin by portraying. They, they praise Him. They praise God for these. They praise Him for vindicating His name. For living up to His promises. To being, for being faithful to His people. For showing His people mercy and for giving them the lasting joy of knowing Him. Do you know that joy? Do you know the, the joy that is found in Serving Jesus, do you know the joy that is found in knowing that you are right with God, that you've been reconciled to your maker by the cross of Calvary? Do you know the joy that your eternity is not dependent upon your performance, but dependent upon the person and the work of Jesus Christ accomplished on your behalf? Do you know the joy? Are you you serving the true king and the righteous judge? Friend, if you are serving him... If you know this king and this judge, if you know the Messiah, if you are following after Jesus Christ, then God's coming judgment is no reason for you to fear. Let's look at how the text concludes. Verse 21, John writes, he says, Then a mighty angel picked up a boulder the size of a large millstone and threw it into the sea. And he said, With such violence, the great city of Babylon will be thrown down, never to be found again. The music of harpists and musicians Pipers and trumpeters will never be heard in you again. No worker of any trade will ever be found in you again. The sound of a millstone will never be heard in you again. The light of a lamp will never shine in you again. The voice of bridegroom and bride will never be heard in you again. Your merchants were the world's important people. By your magic spell, all the nations were led astray. In her was found the blood of prophets and of God's holy people, of all who have been slaughtered on the earth. You see, those who glory in self, those who glory in self, those who glory in self-satisfaction, self-gratification, self-image, and self-promotion will condemn whoever and whatever stands in their way. Be it the weak and the poor and the marginalized or simply uh, those who are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. Church, it has happened throughout history. Our Savior promised as much and it will continue to happen until King Jesus returns. And yet, even so, friends, we are called. As those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation, we are called to be ambassadors of that gospel. We are called to be God's representatives in the world. We are called to be salt and light. We are called to proclaim the good news of salvation in Jesus in a world that most often doesn't want to hear the message. A message that says we're lost, we're condemned, we're broken, we're in need of someone else to rescue us, someone else to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. We're called to face rejection and ridicule, but to do so in ways that preserve God's truth as salt preserves food. And to promote God's redeeming grace by shining his light into a dark and wicked world. We are called to be salt We're called to be light by rejoicing in Christ Jesus alone. And when we rejoice in him alone, then we will hold the treasures of this life loosely. 
Hold the treasures of this life loosely. Friend, what are you clinging to? Are you clinging to Jesus and His gospel? Or are you clinging to the world and its passing pleasures and treasures? Because the Bible reveals that Christ followers won't mourn when the gold and the silver and the pearls and the silk of our own day diminishes because we'll still have Jesus whose mercy and justice and power remain forever and ever and ever. One who says to us, but seek first my kingdom and my righteousness and all these things will be given to you as well. So brother, sister, follower of Jesus Christ, hold the treasures of this life loosely and celebrate the God who saves. Celebrate the God who saves. Worship the God who saves. Delight in the one who has rescued us. The one who has saved us. The one who spares us God's pending judgment. A judgment that we deserve, but forgiveness that has been extended to us by the mercy of the Most High God. Do you know the God who saves? The one who rescues in Jesus. Friends, celebrate Him for He longs to deliver you. He longs to spare you and me His judgment. He longs to gather us into His eternal city. So hold the treasures of this life. Loosely celebrate the God who saves. And finally, use your gifts to glorify God as long as He has you here. Use your gifts to glorify the Most High God. To be salt and to be light is to use what God has given you for His glory rather than for your own. It is to play music and to sing. It is to hone your craft and to trade cargo. It is to defend the wrongfully accused and to care for the sick. It is to teach the truth and to serve customers. It is to play soccer or to play the trombone, all for the glory of the Most High God who made you, who sustains you, and who has redeemed you by the blood of His Son. Friends, our text today is meant to uncover the condition of our hearts. It's meant to expose wherever our primary allegiance lies. I would argue that all Scripture rightly read and digested and applied should do just that. It's meant to expose our hearts. Are are our hearts set upon the world? Or are they set upon Jesus? Friend, will you grieve when this wicked world is destroyed or will you rejoice because you have Jesus? Are you living for self Or are you living for Jesus? Christ calls us to love and live for Him. Son of God and Savior of the world. And the one who made us. One who loves us with an unfailing love. The one who emptied himself and took on human flesh, who became one of us, born in humble circumstances and lived and walked dusty streets of of Israel. This one who went to the cross on our behalf, who rose triumphantly from the dead, who ascended back to his rightful place in heaven and who is coming again. This one calls us to love him and to live for him. Revelation 18 summons us not to put our hope here, not to lay up treasures here on earth, but to invest, to invest in what will count forever. What profit is it 
to gain the whole world and to forfeit your soul. Friend, are you loving and living for Jesus? May we be a people who rejoice in Jesus, who delight in Him, who love Him in response to His love for us. And may we be a people who live for Him moment by moment, day after day, week after week, week after week, year after year, until Jesus returns. Amen? You don't sound so confident. Amen? Lord, lead us to do so. Lead us to live for your glory. Lead us to spend our lives serving you. Lord, we humbly stand under your authority today, recognizing that your word is true and that it is good. And Lord, that it is often difficult and challenging but meant to convict us and to instruct us and to exhort us and to encourage us to further faith in You. Because You are kind. Lord, You are a righteous and eternal and holy judge who has a standard of perfection and yet we have fallen short. But even so, Lord, You are merciful. You are gracious. You are compassionate. You are slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And You invite us to be Your people. You invite us to know the hope of eternity. You invite us to to fellowship with you through Jesus. Lord, you save us by your grace. May we never lose sight of that. May we continually be overwhelmed by your presence and your mercy and your unfailing love for us. And may we live our lives for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.